Thank you, Jared and Jessica, for uh, lighting our first candle today for our season of Advent. And of course, as Jared said, that was the candle of prophecy. And he read for you Jeremiah, chapter 31, 15 through 17, and then Matthew 2. He went over to the New Testament, and Jessica read for us chapter 2, beginning in verse 16. I'm sure you realize that the Christmas story, which is the incarnation of God becoming a man, the enfleshment of our God putting on skin, did not have its original origin in the New Testament. The fact of the matter is, the teaching, that is, has its root in the Old Testament. Hundreds of years prior to the coming of Jesus Christ to this earth, it was prophesied in the Old Testament. So God's work through the Old Testament had everything to do with this baby born in Bethlehem. And if you listen very closely to Jeremiah 31, 15 through 17, and the complementary text of Matthew 2, uh, 16 through 18, you might find an altogether new and fresh perspective on the Advent. And that's my prayer for you as we study this today. There may be more reason to rejoice during the Advent than you could have ever known or ever knew before. Here we see Christmas pleasure in these passages in the midst of worldly pain. In 1830, the Indian Removal Act brought about a forced relocation of American Indians from their homelands to newly designated Indian territories. Those journeyings, or journeys, especially in the case of the Cherokee Indians, was over 1,000 miles, which was tantamount into a death march. It was marked by painful loss of homeland. It was marked by exposure to, to freezing weather, disease, <clears throat> starvation, and death. We, of course, call that tragic era of American history the... I'm glad you learned a little bit of history, right? Well, the Bible has its own trail of tears. And the trail of tears are the tears of Rachel. And this Lord's Day, as we begin the Advent, I want to follow and track Rachel's tears from the Word of God. Now, we have to go a long way back to start that, don't we? Y'all know your biblical history? We learn that uh, I'm not going to read the text again. I trust that you listen to Jared and Jessica as they read those. I'll put them together for you. You have Rachel weeping in Ramah for her children that are no more. And then you have Matthew quoting that Jeremiah 31:15 passage when Herod slaughters all the babies two years of age and younger in Bethlehem. So that's kind of the context. But the story doesn't begin there. Why is Rachel weeping? Why is there a trail of tears? It's because, well, it all begins in Genesis chapter 29. Talk about love at first sight. When uh, Jacob sees Rachel, he immediately loves her. And he desires, of course, for Rachel to be his wife. If you read the narrative, you will see that, man, this couple loved each other. And so, you know, Rachel, she belonged to Laban. And Laban was a shyster. I mean, how about that for a paw-in-law, huh? Treat, uh, just 
took money from Jacob all the time and cheated him. Well, it all started when Jacob asked for Rachel's hand in marriage. And he said, sure. And, Rachel, and uh, Jacob agrees to work seven years because he loved Rachel so much. And the Bible uh, lets us know up front that even though he worked, Jacob worked that many, those many years of seven that it felt like no time at all because he loved her so much. But we know after the seven years, Jacob gets stuck with a different woman. Leah. Leah becomes his wife. And uh, that's not a good thing, you know what I mean? After you've worked seven years for one bride and you get another. Complexity, difficulty, all kind of things track in the narrative as you're reading through the Old Testament when it comes to Rachel and Jacob. So, Jacob has to work 14 more years for his bride, and he does so. That's a very long engagement, isn't it? That's a long time, 14 years. I always encourage kids, don't, don't have long engagements. How about this one? 14 years. Now, after 14 years, they are finally brought together, and you would think that there would be incredible extreme happiness, but the Scriptures indicate to us that that was not the case with this newly married couple And it was especially true on Rachel's side. Her sister Leah was incredibly fertile and was bearing children left and right. Rachel, Rachel, however, was childless. And in her anguish, she said to Jacob on one occasion, Give me children or I die. And Jacob retorts and says to her, Am I in the place of God? And so the race begins. And as you read the narratives, there's competition and complexity and difficulties about childbearing and childrearing, and you can read that. But finally, God answers Rachel in her desire, and God satisfies her insatiable desire to have children. God opens her womb, and she's pregnant, and she gives birth, and it's a happy, happy day. And the baby that comes forth is a little boy, and they name him, oh yeah, somebody got it right, right? Joseph. Rachel's prayer after the birth of Joseph was simply this. God, give me more children. i got to keep up with fertile myrtle over here, right? (laughs) She does. I mean, there's competition. It's it's complex. And so uh, it was God uh, praying, God, give me more children. So Jacob, if you read down through, you get to around chapter 35, 34, Genesis. He finally is able to break away from Laban. It was not without cost. I mean, he cheats him again. But finally, Jacob breaks away with his wives and his sons, and he moves away. And then this awesome thing happens. God meets Jacob at Bethel. You know the story. He is revealed as El Shaddai. He reveals himself to Jacob, and he blesses him. And he tells Jacob, I'm going to give you more descendants. And Jacob is now a new man, has a new name, Israel. He worships God. He is... Not only the God of Abraham and Isaac, but he's also now the God of Jacob. It's an awesome story. He sets up a stone pillar to commemorate the incredible blessing of that event. And there's no doubt that Jacob went home that day and told Rachel about how God had blessed him and that they would have many descendants. And they celebrate God's covenant faithfulness to them. The very next event on the calendar in Exodus, in chronologically in Genesis 35 is when Jacob takes his clan toward Ephrath. Now, isn't that interesting? 
This will later be known as Bethlehem, the house of bread, and the city of David. It's on that journey that Rachel is again pregnant. And it's on that journey that she goes into a severe labor. She has the baby, but she dies. In the midst of her anguish, in her final tearful words, she gives the boy the name Ben-Oni. And that's the translation of the son of my sorrow. But after Rachel's death, Jacob renames the boy Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. So Rachel would be buried on the way to Ephrath or Bethlehem, and her tears would be famous in all of Israel. Now, in Jeremiah, we have recorded Rachel's tears. Jacob's sons, of course, would become the twelve tribes of Israel. They go into Egypt a little later. They're delivered. They settle in the promised land. They become a fruitful people, but they are perpetually sinful, perpetually disobedient to the God, our God, Yahweh, who made the promise to them that he would be faithful. Just as the original boys were sketchy and sinful, So were the twelve tribes. So in the midst of all their sins and failures, God kept his covenant promises with the people of Israel. Israel will later reach its golden years under King... There you go. Under King David and Solomon. Those will be called the golden age of Israel's history under David and Solomon. But that was short-lived. Because rebellion started and civil war and bad kings and it made it difficult for Israel. So God sends a prophet to warn them, doesn't he? And then he gives them prophet after prophet, but they didn't listen to them. It was of no avail. They didn't repent and turn to God. And so in Jeremiah's time, the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh are no more. I mean, those were the linchpin tribes in the northern section. Ephraim and Manasseh. They are no more. And what is Jeremiah warning the southern kingdom about? Just as the northern kingdom was taken into Assyrian captivity, Babylon is on the way. And he's warning them at this point. Your tribes are going to be scattered and taken over and they will be no more. And so in a sense, Rachel stands as the mother of all the descendants of Jacob. Ephraim and Manasseh being that backbone of the northern ten. And and then the southern kingdom to which Benjamin belonged. They would be devastated by Babylon. And so they too would be no more. Exiled or killed, Rachel's children are all swept away. What is Jeremiah called? He's called the weeping prophet. And he's weeping. Why? Why? Because the people will not turn back to God. And he knows the northern kingdom is already in captivity. And the southern kingdom will be in captivity soon. In order to do that, he uses Rachel. Isn't that awesome? How God prompts Jeremiah to use Rachel and her tears to bring about a perspective to the people. So it's almost too much to bear. And Jeremiah says that Rachel refuses to be comforted. We also see Rachel's tears in Matthew. The gospel writer Matthew will quote Jeremiah 31.15 in chapter 2 of his gospel. We're introduced to, to Herod, right? Verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. 
And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice is heard in Ramah. Rama weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So we're introduced to Herod, the governor. Or we might call him the self-proclaimed puppet king of Jerusalem or Israel. And here he is under the Roman tyranny. And this is a ruthless dude. If you study anything about Herod extra-biblically you'll find out that he had already had his three sons killed because they were a threat, he thought, to their throne. And if he suspected that you were a conspirator in any way, he had you killed and everybody associated with you killed. He was a paranoid devil of a man. He was actually an Edomite. And the Edomites were descendants of Esau. So Matthew tells us that the the wise men came from the east. And the Bible tells us they're looking for the king to worship him, the Lord Jesus Christ. So they go to the authority of the land in Judah, who is King Herod. Herod, in turn, inquires from the chief priests and scribes. This Edomite doesn't even know the scripture at all, right? Where will the Christ child be born? That was his question. So these biblical scholars of the day say, Bethlehem of Judah. Where does that come from? Micah chapter 5, verse 2. We could have easily started this off with that particular text, but we're doing Jeremiah. So Herod fakes his desire. He says, I want to go and worship the king, this newborn king. And the Magi, of course, go and worship him. Uh, You know, it's pretty astonishing at this particular point that Christ the king has entered this world and he's recognized by both men and angels and he's worshipped. Didn't take long, did it? Even though it didn't cause a ripple in the clamor of Bethlehem, God had his son worship immediately because that's what he deserves to be. He, believe, he deserves to be worshiped. So they're warned, the, the Magi are warned, not to go back to Herod, but instead to return home. And what does Herod do? In his rage, he gives a gruesome death order. He tells his soldiers to go down to Bethlehem and murder Every born, every child born that is two years old and under. Stop and think about this for a moment. He's paranoid, isn't he? He's worried about this king over in Bethlehem that is born because if it's true, uh, he's, uh, of his reign there shall be no end. I'm sure Herod thinks about this. So he, in his murder, in his rage, in his, in his rage he murders... Baby boys with a sword. Scholars surmise that Jesus was between the age of six months and 20 months. Which, of course, when we have the wise men coming to the birth narrative, we know that's not right. Right? They would not have done that at all. They're coming to worship him after his birth. And so, here is uh, the small rural village. How big was Bethlehem? Small, wasn't it? Oh, you, Bethlehem of Ephrathah, although you are small in number, small place, Micah 2, out of you shall come one, a ruler uh, whose beginning 
who has no beginning. He's the ancient of days. Scholars estimate that no more than 20 male children would have been killed on that night in Bethlehem. Now we think about that for a moment. When we read that, we're thinking this is going to be mass amounts of children. But if you only had 400 to 1,000 people living in this rural place of Bethlehem, scholars surmise that you've got about 20 boys, no more than 20. But I want to remind you that every one of those 20 were precious in their mother and father's eyes. Take that for in consideration, losing these babies. The weeping that night, of course, would be heard in heaven. The weeping of the fathers and the mothers and the siblings. Imagine the hoof prints, the hoof beats of hearing those horses come into your community in the middle of the night to kill your baby boy. You can just imagine the mourning and the weeping. Merciless orders carried out by Roman soldiers. The murder of little children who did nothing, committed no crimes, except for they were born on a particular date or before that date, and they lived in a particular geographical area. What Matthew sees in Bethlehem on this terrible night, not far from where Rachel was buried, are once more Rachel's tears. Boy, the Bible is fascinating, isn't it? It's fascinating. Hundreds of years later, that Matthew would pick up on Jeremiah. It's fascinating that Jeremiah would pick up on Rachel's tears in the death of Benjamin. And then it's fascinating. It's, it's, it's God Almighty doing this. But Matthew is picking up on the trail of Rachel's tears. Just as Rachel wept for her children in exile. Who were massacred by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Here we have mothers and fathers who are mourning the brutal loss of their children. And once again, Rachel is weeping. Matthew sees the trail of tears being fulfilled out of Jeremiah 31.15. And when Matthew quotes 3.15, he doesn't want us to stop reading at verse 15. Have we ever played Old Testament named that tune? Yeah, I've told you about that, right? Well, that's why Jared not only read verse 15, but also 16 and 17. Because the text says, dry your tears. Wipe them away. Your children are going to come home. And the fact of the matter is, there is hope. So Rachel's tears will not only represent the shattered hopes of Joseph's or Jacob's wife, but also the shattered lives of those who had gone into exile. Those who were oppressed, living lives under fear. And according to Jeremiah 31, 16, the time for tears is almost over. It's exactly what Jeremiah is talking about. And if you read Matthew's gospel, you'll find out that the Messiah escapes and Herod dies. And is strong in the text. Verse 19, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. I think God won the day. Right? And of course, this is the first ray of hope. Jesus will live. Herod is dead. Matthew, in a sense, tells us to read on in Jeremiah 31. Your tears will dry up and you will have hope. God is about to do something new. God is up to something. He's about to do something new. And in the midst of the tears, in the midst of Rachel's tears, of her children being swept away, and in the midst of 
her being inconsolable, right? Because she can't be comforted. God is doing something new. And it begins with this. Herod is dead. And Jesus is alive. That's where the hope springs forth. God's children will not be forever oppressed. Restoration is coming. Repentance is coming. If you keep reading on in Jeremiah 31, you'll find out what God is going to do. Isn't this great? Chapter 31. It is the new covenant found in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with the fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Look down, verse 36. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. You read Hebrews chapter 8, you're introduced again to the new covenant. So God is about, God not only ends, gives us a new exodus, He ends the mournful exile, which is the sermon today. He also even loves His enemies because He grows up in Nazareth. Well, they're going to say, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Right? He even loves his enemies. This is a new day. God tells us what he's about to do. God loves his people. And yes, there is pain and oppression and exile. But the son of David has come. The son of David has come. The son of God has appeared. You know, sorrow and grief will not have the last word. Because God is bringing deliverance and God is bringing salvation. On the one hand, there's horrible news. Children are dying. Fathers and mothers are weeping in oppression and anguish. They're hurt. But folks, the Bible teaches us that there is hope in the midst of hurt. There's life in the midst of death. And what is this hope? Where is this life? Matthew tells us, a new king has been born. And his name is Jesus. A king who will reconcile us to our God. And we're all in exile unless you hadn't figured that out. Everybody in this room. You either were in exile or you are today. And so we have a king. Isn't it interesting how people received the Son of God? You got Zechariah in chapter Luke 1, 68-79 who says this, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed this people and has raised a horn of salvation for us. Mary, in Luke 1, 46-55, said, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in the God of my Savior. How about Simeon and Anna? What an awesome couple. The Bible says that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Isn't it awesome to contemplate that scene when Simeon is in the temple and Mary is holding the Christ child in her arms and Simeon takes the baby Jesus and he says, Behold, your bondservant has seen the salvation of the Lord. Wouldn't it have been an awesome thing to hold salvation in your arms? Just think about this. Think about how awesome it was. For him to hold in his arms the God who created the world in human flesh. 
That's what we're dealing with at Christmas. Right? That's the real story. God in human flesh. The birth of this baby boy that caused Herod to go out of his mind is the baby that's going to walk the face of the earth and he's going to heal and restore. God himself enters this world and turns this world of tears upside down. All because of Jesus. In this life we have tears, don't we? In this life we have weeping. There's sadness and there's sorrow. I want to remind you today that the world in which the Son of God entered is the world you live in today. You think, well, it's different today. No, it's not. I want to remind you that the world that Jesus entered into was not some kind of ideal utopia. It wasn't some kind of good setting for that day for the king to come down. It was a world full of evil, full of oppression, and full of sin, just like the world you live in today. The world that Jesus Christ came into is our world. That's the only world that exists. Earth, I want to remind you, it's the only one that exists, no matter what the scientists tell you, or astronomers, or whoever they are, right? He entered into a fallen world filled with tears. So even as, the text says, the desire of the nations came into this world, Satan was raging against him through his pawn, Herod, seeking to kill the Christ child. He entered into this world not with pomp and circumstance, but through the portal of a virgin's womb. Stinky, nasty, difficult, the God of the ages stepped into humanity. Isn't that awesome? God chose the portal of a virgin's womb to come to this world. And yet, what God says to us through His Son is this. Dry your tears. I am the hope for the world. Period. His name is Jesus. In Him there is hope. In Him there is a future. In Him there is restoration. In Him there is forgiveness of sins and freedom. And listen, the very mercy of God that we need most is in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even in Him, one day, those babies in Bethlehem that were slaughtered on that fateful night will be raised by the Lord Jesus Christ who has healing in His wings. Amen? Even the aborted babies across the United States of America, all over the world, God will give them a new glorified body one day. Right? No question. God will win the day. Rachel's tears remind us how much we need a Savior, folks. If you can read about Herod and what he does to these babies and not think that we need a Savior or something is really bad wrong with you. Right? Israel's failures to their covenant-keeping God reminds us of our need for a Savior. Herod's violence... And the painful loss in Bethlehem remind us that we need a Savior. The world that Jesus came into is our world. And whether you've recognized it or not, you need deliverance. Jesus, in fact, would escape Herod's evil plans and went about in a ministry of reconciliation. Did he not? I think Jesus dried a lot of tears. He touched people in a sin-wracked world. He knew how to dry the tears of sin. His ultimate work of restoration, though, was what? His death on the cross. To reconcile lost sinners unto himself. But it didn't end at the cross. And in a grave. He was raised for our vindication. 
raised for our justification. He was vindicated. And he rules and reigns today at the Father's right hand. And he indeed is our shalom. He's our peace. Period. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. He will come again. Amen? Have I told you that lately? He will come again with power and glory to judge, the Bible says, both the living and the dead. And the Bible tells us in the book of Revelation that he will make a new heaven and a new earth and he will wipe away. Son, that'll be the end of the tears, won't it? Right? That's the end of the tears where he's going to wipe all of them away. The Bible says the former things shall have passed away and all things will be new. Do I need to remind you that the light is already shining? That Jesus Christ came to this world some 2,000 years ago and fulfilled every aspect of the Old Testament. And we are living today in the New Kingdom era in the sense of the kingdom is now here. The light is already shining. The message of Christmas is simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who lives. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who lives. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who can make all things new. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who is the only one that can restore your life and forgive your sins. It's Jesus Christ and Him alone. Believe in Jesus who restores and forgives. Sorrow and sadness and death will not have the last word in this sin-sick world. Because Jesus Christ is the final word, and His word brings everlasting joy and gladness. I trust that He is yours and that you are His. Don't we love the good and bad guy stories? We do. We think uh, in the Bible we're drawn to those. You've got the bad guy, Goliath, good guy, David. You have uh, Cain and Abel. You have Pharaoh and Moses. There are others. Jacob and Esau, we could think of others. You've got a little bit of that in Bethlehem, don't you? Or as Christ condescends to this, this earth and is born in human flesh. You've got the good guys, Joseph and Mary and Zechariah and Simeon and Anna. But you've got the bad guys. You've got Herod and you've got these religious leaders. To whom would you identify with the most? Be careful. To whom do you identify with the most? Those who received him and bowed down in worship? Or those who were afraid that Jesus would take their kingdom? Some of you, even this day, are rejecting Jesus as your Lord because you don't want him to invade your kingdom. It's your kingdom. It's your plans. It's your life. Why am I going to let anybody tell me what I'm going to do? Well, you're rejecting the God of glory. And the only means of eternal salvation. To whom do you identify with the most? If we're honest, in the root of all of us, we identify most with Herod. Now, if you're saved today, I would say that you've surrendered your life and you've bowed the knee. But if you're lost today, then you identify most with Herod. You don't want Jesus on your turf. He's a threat to you. He's a threat to your kingdom. These are representative responses to the Redeemer when He came to this world. It's still that way today. The Bible says He came into His own, and His own received Him not. I want to encourage you 
to accept and receive the long-expected Jesus. The King has come. He's the only Savior, period, of mankind. David's going to come and lead us in the song, Jesus, long-expected King. Come thou long-expected Jesus. Written by Charles Wesley. Listen to the words. Jesus Christ ends the mournful exile. There's no exile that's worse than dying in your sin. Some of you may think today, well, preacher, I'm just going to go to hell and be with my friends. I want to remind you that death never ends. I want to remind you that eternal judgment is forever. Some lost people have the mentality that when you die, you're just going to be annihilated. You'll cease to exist. I beg to differ with you. The Bible says you're going to live. Your soul is going to live somewhere forever in heaven or hell. And so for people who say, well, I'm just going to hang out with my friends in hell. There's no hanging out. It's eternal torment forever. That's the worst thing about judgment. But boy, isn't there good news with the gospel? That's why it's good news. Because there's such bad news for us without Jesus. Would you come to Jesus this morning? I say that without apology. Unashamedly, there is no salvation in any other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. It's only in Jesus Christ.